In answer to the question that the Buddha was asked, he is giving the path of training to the questioner, questioner being called Potapada, and the whole sutta being called that. And the whole path of training is first all the preliminary things we have to do, morality, guarding the sense doors, mindfulness and clear comprehension, contentment, letting go of the hindrances, and then we come to the first jhana. All of these things we have a chance to practice here. And I'd like to repeat once more, it's quite important to understand that all of the steps are necessary. And I like to compare it once more to a road map. Now, everybody knows how to use a road map. It takes you from one point on the road map to another. But if you don't drive along the prescribed path and use all the instructions to get there, you're undoubtedly going to lose your way. And also, in addition to that, you've got to look at every piece of that road map. If you want to drive from here to New York, it's no use looking at New York on the road map. You'll have to look at the first instance where you have to go. First instance might be, um, I don't know how to get there, actually. might be L.A. or something. But what, that's what you have to look at. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I really need the road map. <laughs> but it's hopeless if we keep looking at New York, if we want to go there by car and drive there, if we don't take every step on the way. I mean, that's uh, obvious, isn't it? Well, this is a road map. That's all it is, step by step. And we're getting told each step. We don't even have to think it up ourselves. It's excellently explained, so we can use it. After... Having reached the first jhana, the Buddha talks about the second one. And what he says is this. With the subsiding of initial and sustained application, by gaining inner tranquility and unity of mind, one reaches and remains in the second jhana, which is free from initial and sustained application, born of concentration, filled with delight and happiness. The first two aspects, initial and sustained application to the meditation subject, can now be dropped because initially we paid attention to the breath and then sustained that application on the breath. So we can drop those two because one is concentrated at that time. The uh, reaching of the first jhana has concentrated the mind so that it doesn't have to start all over again. Now, that holds true when one is practiced. It doesn't hold true in the beginning. In the beginning, the mind wavers and falls off the subject, and one might have to do initial and sustained application again. It doesn't matter. On a practical aspect, what really happens is that the delightful sensation that we are concentrated on in the first jhana may actually dissolve while we're still trying to be concentrated on it. Well, what's dissolving is the concentration, not the sensation. The sensation is always there. It never disappears. 
we can't possibly put it in there. It's there, but our concentration, of course, isn't. So what one can do, instead of starting all over with the breath or with the loving-kindness meditation again or whichever subject one has chosen, one can just put the mind back onto that delightful sensation, which is usually possible to do. And having noticed in which spot of the body it is strongest, one goes to that spot. This is not to be misunderstood that we are putting attention on the body itself. We are putting the attention on the delightful sensation. But since it is housed in the body, we find that area. We usually don't have to go back to the initial um, meditation subject, but can go right back to that sensation. If that isn't possible, we might have to start over again. It depends on our concentration. Now, when we come to the second jhana, from a practical standpoint, other than what is being said here, or in addition, I should say, to what is being said here, we drop the attention on the delightful sensation quite voluntarily after having been on it for sufficient length of time. Sufficient length of time means not falling off it, it means staying with it, and having actually become immersed in it and being totally cognizant of it so that there's no doubt what it's like. 10-15 minutes should be more than sufficient, but that means not wavering from it. So we have to first get that one clear. And dropping it on purpose, because the Buddha's instructions in a different uh, sutta are, one knows that the physical delight, or the bodily sensations, are still gross, and therefore looks for the next higher stage. And the next higher stage is emotion. First it's a physical sensation, then it's emotion. So we voluntarily drop it and go to the inner joy, which at that time is present. And being present, all we need to do is to be very focused. So here it's not called joy, here it's called delight and happiness. And the delight aspect is in the background. The physical sensation stays in the background. There's still lightness of body. There's still a loss of body feeling if the gravity is no longer there. And if one is focused enough, there shouldn't be any pain either. Even though there might be if we come out of it, there's not at that time. So that's the light in the background. But the joy comes into the foreground. This is a meditative joy. This is the one called sukha. And it's the one that really tranquilizes because it also is the antidote for restlessness and worry. At that time, we can use an assistance if we can't find the joy easily. And one of the things people do find helpful is to say the word joy to themselves. Not everybody finds that helpful. Some people wouldn't like to use it because they might find it disturbing. Others do find it helpful. Where we put our mind, and we put it on that word, that's where our whole being goes. And what we don't put our mind on, we don't know. So it can be helpful. And both of these, the first one, the delight, and the second one, the joy, 
still have an element of excitement in them. And one has a feeling as if they're taking place up here somewhere, which they aren't, of course, but it sort of gives on that feeling. And the element of excitement is very strong when one gets to the first jhana the first time, because the mind has all sorts of things to say about that, obviously. That excitement vanishes with habit. If one habitually practices that way, that initial excitement goes away completely. There is still the um, very subtle excitement. It isn't really tranquil yet. And yet we have to go through each step in order to reach the next one, because each one is cause and effect. The delightful sensation is the effect of the cause of the concentration. And the joy is the effect of the cause of the delight. Because there's no way that we can't be joyful if we experience utterly delightful sensations. So the joy is there. And because most people in the world are not conversant with experiencing inner joy, but are dependent upon outside sense contacts for any kind of joy, they find it difficult to actually come in contact with that inner joy. But it's a very important thing to do because we gain quite a lot of insight from that. I'll finish reading what the Buddha has to say and then I'll talk about the insight. The former true but subtle perception of delight and happiness born of detachment vanishes, and at that time there arises a true but subtle perception of delight and happiness born of concentration, and one becomes one who is conscious of this delight and happiness. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. The word perceptions is chosen, but it could also mean consciousness. So we can use both here. The whole sutta is called states of consciousness. So as we get along in that um, explanation of the jhanas, we could very well say consciousness. So what the Buddha is saying, some consciousness arises through training and some passes away through training the kind of consciousness that we usually have, the awareness that we usually have. We all know that. It's uh, completely known to everyone. It's um, sometimes pleasant, very often not. It's always connected to wanting something one doesn't have at the moment or getting rid of something that one does have. And therefore, there's never total peace and joy within. Even though one isn't aware of that one wants something else, one does. One wants total inner peace and joy. And so the ordinary, everyday kind of consciousness that we all run around with and make our living with and talk to people with is one of constant duality. It's me wanting something, and it's me opposed to the world, and it's me opposed to you, and I'm outside of the whole thing. And that's not conducive to peacefulness. So that's the kind of consciousness everybody is quite aware of and lives with. And most people in the world think that's all there is. And... When they believe that's all there is, obviously, they try here and there to find pleasure and happiness, quite rightly so. When we start meditating on a different level, we realize there's a totally different consciousness available to us. And that, in the first instance, is a matter of great 
impact. Later on, one becomes used to it. One knows it. In fact, what arises out of the practice of the other states of consciousness cannot help but be compassion. Compassion and trying, if one is able to, to impart the ability for the other kind of consciousness to anyone who asks. Because the difference is so enormous between the ordinary consciousness that thinks and responds and reacts, even if it reacts on a dumber level. The difference is so enormous that one cannot help but have enormous compassion. And that compassion leads then to trying to be helpful. Which is what the Buddha did. He was teaching for 45 years from the day of his enlightenment at the age of 35 to the day of his death at the age of 80. And it says in the scriptures that he taught every day even in inclement weather and if his if his health was not perfect, he still kept teaching. And he went out of his way to even teach one person because he would know with his clairvoyance that that particular person was ready to get the vision of Dhamma within. And he would always walk to wherever he taught. And he would walk long distances. In his day, uh, the transport possibilities were very small, not like what we have today. If I had had to walk, I wouldn't be here. No way I could have made it. But the transport possibilities in his day were such that there were carts drawn by animals, and he'd never wanted to give his weight to an animal to pull. So it is also one of the rules not to be in an animal-drawn vehicle because the animal might have suffering from that. So he walked. Now, of course, we have other possibilities today. It also says that He meditated each morning and threw out the net of his compassion. Symbolically meant that he used his clairvoyance in order to catch any person that might be ready. And he said there are only a few people who have little dust in their eyes. But he was able to find them because of his uh, powers and so he went to teach them it is said here that in the first jhana there is a true but subtle perception of delight and happiness born of detachment now detachment from our sense desires from our hindrances from any unwholesome states and then In the second jhana, the light and happiness born of concentration. So what is actually meant here, which is not that clear in the sentences, and one really needs to have done it to make out these sentences exactly, is that for the second jhana, we do have stronger concentration. In the first jhana, it's not uncommon that fleeting wispy thoughts arise. doesn't matter. Just get back to the delightful sensation. One hears the sounds. They're not quite as strong as they are when one is without any uh, meditation. They are a little bit removed, but not very far removed yet. In the second jhana, they get further removed. Once has a feeling one is sitting under a glass dome. You still hear sounds, but the glass dome sort of uh, makes them far less 
of um, disturbance. They're muted. And uh, so the concentration becomes successively stronger. And as we get on with the jhanas, our concentration becomes successively more one-pointed. And I have already said in this connection that this concentration brings purification and the purification brings clarity. So the successive addition of more concentration brings successive addition of more purification and therefore successive addition of more clarification. It's all cause and effect. In fact, the Buddha's teaching is sometimes called the teaching of cause and effect. And the reason we can call it that is because he gives such clear and unequivocal guidelines step by step and each step is the cause for the next one and so we can see it and understand it and that's always the first instance to understand completely it doesn't bring us calm or insight yet but if we don't understand we're going to be so muddled that we'll never have a chance so the first instance is understanding And the mind is engaged in that. And with that understanding needs to come the opening of the heart. If that doesn't happen, the best understanding will do nothing for one. Absolutely nothing. One can be impressive by talking well. One can be impressive by writing books about it. But one isn't going to get out of one's own dukkha. One's going to keep it, just like one's always had it. Because if the opening of the heart doesn't happen, the vision of the Dhamma cannot enter. So the opening of the heart happens when the understanding has been such that one gains confidence. And with confidence comes the joy of the practice. And they go together, the understanding and the heart opening. The need to go together. The insights. Now, I mentioned already that we need to do three steps after we come out of the jhana or any good meditation. The first one is that two is impermanent. Second one is What was my pathway? And the third one is, what have I learned from this experience? Now, in the first instance, when we have delightful sensation, we have already mentioned that that should be an antidote for lust. If we can recognize, and it's obvious that one recognizes, there's no way that one can't, that one has everything one's searching for already within one. Now, when it is an antidote for lust, that doesn't mean that we have to remove ourselves from human company. On the contrary, we can be within the company of other people without having the disturbing desires and also the disturbing rejections, and be at ease with them because we are at ease within ourselves. We'll never be at ease outside with others if we don't first become at ease with ourselves. Peace is made within us. It's not made outside of us. It then, of course, emanates outside, but first it has to be made inside. So, when we have the delightful sensation, the first thing that the mind recognizes is an elevated consciousness, a consciousness which is removed from the um, marketplace mentality where one constantly wants to get something or get rid of something, but rather 
a consciousness which is expanded. It seems to have a feeling of expansion about it, certainly different. So when it happens for the first time, the mind is always apt to give a real commentary on it. But uh, that doesn't matter when it does it the next time again. The expansion of consciousness, which gives rise to the understanding that there's more to life than the senses. Even the most subtle and most delightful sense contacts, such as nature, flowers, rainbows, sunsets, poems, anything at all that comes through the senses, even the most delightful things which are subtle and have no connotation of unwholesomeness, all of that is outside of us and we are dependent upon it. And we don't always feel the light. That does not depend on the quality of the sunset, as we might think it does. It depends on the quality of our total immersion in the sunset. And this is a very interesting aspect of the whole matter, that we often think that our delights come from certain things which are outside of us through the senses, such as sunset. I'm just going to use that as an example. But it's got nothing to do with that. That's a trigger. The trigger which helps us to immerse ourselves totally in that sensual experience without any connotation of the me within that. Well, it's totally immersed in it. And there's nobody there that says, I want to keep it, I want to have it, I want to get it again. Because everybody knows it would be absurd with the sunset. Now, there are other things that, of course, where the me afterwards arises again. But what arises after the sunset is gone, which is very quick, and one has had this delight, then the idea comes, I must go and look for sunsets, because that's when I'm delighted. But it's a totally wrong view. And this is what I meant when I said once that we have all the experiences, but we haven't got the understanding for them. We experience everything. Everything that needs, we, need, we need to reach enlightenment, but we can't quite make it out what it is. So we need the Buddha to tell us and then make out our experiences and then see what they are. So as we have this different level of consciousness which we immediately recognize that it's different, that it's more expandable, that we have uh, the light which is within and not outside, we also get to know that it's our immersion in it which brings it about. And we can immediately infer that everything we've ever looked for is already within us. Everybody's got it. It's real dukkha that mankind is looking for satisfaction, happiness and joy outside of themselves and don't even know it because they don't recognize their sense contacts as being dependent upon something outside of themselves. So that's our first understanding that we gain. The second one, when we come to the joy, we realize that this is of a far finer quality than any joy that we have experienced so far, that it lies within us, that we didn't have to do anything other than concentrate, that it is a way to have our whole being immersed in joy, which is hardly possible with sense contacts. 
knowing that this is possible, knowing that we can actually do that, obviously removes the necessity to look for pleasant sense contacts. We get them, but we don't have to look for them. And that makes an awful lot of difference. We save ourselves a lot of trouble. Because what we do in looking for pleasant sense contacts is an expenditure in time and energy and very often connected with dukkha because we can't get what we want or we get it only partially or somebody stands in the way and our whole being is immersed then in dukkha. So even this second step on the eight or we can say also nine steps of the jhanas is already an enormous change in our habits. So we integrate that into our daily life automatically. Nobody can stop us because our mind realizes what is happening and the senses are still the same as they've always been. The eyes can see, the ear can hear. We can taste, touch and smell and think. But we don't have to go to this enormous kind of trouble trying to find the pleasurable contacts. On the contrary, it happens quite often in a longer meditation course that people say they've gone outside and all of a sudden the green was much greener and the blue of the sky, if it appears, was much bluer. And obviously neither the sky nor the bushes have changed. It's a perception which has changed. The perception which has become clearer. The clarity of the perception is due to the fact that one isn't looking for the pleasure through the senses, nor wants to keep it, nor wants to get it back. It just is. And as it just is, it isn't imbued with desire. And when it's not imbued with desire, it doesn't have any dukkha in it. When it doesn't have any dukkha in it, even though we don't notice that there's dukkha in it, it still has a dukkha in it of wanting and wanting to keep. And here, it doesn't have that anymore. It's just straightforward sense contact and therefore has a more refined quality about it. That too is a result of second jhana and the understanding, the realization that we don't have to look anywhere in the world for anything. We've all got it already makes an enormous difference in one's peace of mind. The peace of mind that arises from that is not complete or total yet, but it certainly brings a feeling of um, tranquility outside of meditation because one knows it's all here. We don't have to go anywhere. We don't have to believe anything. We don't have to uh, do anything it's already all done naturally we can still do things in fact one does them usually much better because one isn't attached to the result of the doing as being the epitome of that which is going to bring happiness to us but we're totally just doing for doing sake because it needs to be done and so one can do it much easier there's no blockage within one knows that there's something else which is more refined more subtle and greater than what happens in the world one does not 
start despising the world. One does not have any rejection of the world. One just doesn't have any expectation of it. And where there's no expectation, there's no disappointment. So the whole thing sort of sorts itself out on a very peaceful level. The Buddha has more to say about the jhana. One is a repetition. It's just in addition, with the subsiding of initial and sustained application by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, one enters and remains in the second jhana, which is without initial and sustained application, born of concentration, filled with delight and joy. The oneness of mind is a one-pointedness, which is a feature of all meditations, but here becomes stronger. And again it says it's born of concentration. So that's much stronger concentration in the second jhana. Successively, always a little stronger. And the inner tranquility which arises is not complete yet, but it is more tranquility than in the first jhana. So that's why it's mentioned. Because the first jhana is only in the background now, the delightful sensation. With this delight and joy born of concentration, he so suffuses the body that no spot remains untouched. And now he gives a simile about the uh, no spot of the body being untouched. And again, we mustn't misunderstand this business about the body. These are mental concomitants that do manifest also in, in a physical way. We sometimes we, we can say that the joy is felt right here in the middle of the chest where we say the spiritual heart is. Well, obviously, the joy is a mental-emotional state, but we are pointing to a spot in the body. So this is very um, common. We have no other place to manifest except the body. So the uh, delight which is in the background and the joy which is in the foreground, one uses to suffuse oneself from top to bottom. And now you might even remember and uh, realize why I so often say in the loving-kindness meditation, fill yourself with that joy from head to toe. This is a feature of first and second jhana. And if you can do it in loving-kindness meditation, you have an entry. So here's a simile. Just as a lake fed by a spring with no inflow from east, west, north, or south, where the rain god sends moderate showers from time to time, the water welling up from below, mingling with cool water, would suffuse, fill, and irradiate that cool water so that no part of the pool would be untouched by it. So as the cool water would mingle with the other water that's in that pool. So with this delight and joy born of concentration, one so suffuses the body that no spot remains untouched. This is very good um, instruction because very often the joy is felt, as I said here, only in this spot, the chest, and one can quite easily enlarge it so that it feels as if one is suffused by it. And then, only then, does it become the completeness of the second jhana. When it becomes the completeness, when one, one is totally immersed in it, then one has the experience that this kind of joy 
has a quality which one has never experienced before, although one knows joy. It has a sweetness about it. It has a feeling of fulfillment about it. And because of that, the mind changes from the joy to the next step. And I'll um, explain the next step also. Because of that fulfillment in joy, which is the antidote for our restlessness and worries, contentment arises. A kind of contentment different from the one that we have spoken about, where we need to be content with the situation we are in, who we are, have gratitude for every good thing in our lives, and feel at ease and satisfied in order to start meditation. There we have to bring up in the mind all the things that can make us content. And we realize that there is much that can bring contentment. And so we have to remember them, put the mind on those features of our lives. Here, the contentment is of a different quality. The contentment arises because we got what we wanted. We got fulfilling joy. (coughs) And we can and should, after some time, let go of the joy even though we find it most pleasant and let the mind immerse itself in contentment which has the feeling about it that the mind is dropping down. It doesn't do anything of the sort, of course, but it does have that feeling. Whereas the first two jhanas seem to be happening sort of in an upper region here. (coughs) (coughs) The The third one seems to bring about more depth. I'll read you what the Buddha says about the third jhana. After the fading away of the light, one dwells in equanimity, mindful and clearly aware, and experiences in the body that pleasant feeling of which the noble ones say, happy dwells the one of equanimity and mindfulness, and one reaches and remains in the third jhana. It's called equanimity here. Actually, equanimity is a feature of the fourth one, and so very often it's difficult to distinguish between number three and number four, but from a practical standpoint, one can do it in, so, in, in this manner. Having let go of the joy on purpose, If the concentration has um, waned, then usually the whole meditation stops. So it is much better practice to let go on purpose after having been totally immersed. And again, the Buddha says in another discourse that one realizes that the joy, the emotional state, is still quite gross, and that one reaches for a finer, more subtle, higher state. And so reaching for that, one drops the joy. 
Now, sometimes people find it difficult to drop it, have to do so in order to carry on. Other people find it difficult to get there. There's all sorts of difficulties, but eventually one can learn the whole pathway. There's no reason why one can't, none whatsoever. It's only a matter of patience and perseverance and no result thinking. The achievement syndrome will have to be left behind. There's nothing to achieve. We've got it all within us. It's all there. So, dropping the attention on the joy makes it go away. Again, another instance where we realize that only, we only know that which we put our mind on. And then, having dropped it, the mind is at ease and contented. And the first thing that one experiences is that contentment, a feeling of being a feeling of peacefulness. It's, um, it's very tranquil. Now, the word equanimity is actually quite descriptive because contentment is equanimity. And mindful and clearly aware is a description of the one-pointedness of the mind. Being totally aware and awake. And the pleasant feeling that is mentioned is a feature of any jhana. Any jhana is pleasant. In fact, utterly pleasant. So, the pleasantness of the first jhana, which was delightful sensation, is left behind now in the third jhana, and the pleasantness of the third jhana comes through contentment and peacefulness. And this is a very important step of insight, automatic insight. Real insight is also wisdom. The two go hand in hand. And it can only arise through one's own personal experience. What we usually compare it with is biting into the mango. If we've never eaten a mango and we'd like to know what it tastes like and somebody gives a wonderful description, absolutely perfect description, the whole thing is laid out, maybe even with diagrams and pictures. That's a mango and that's what it tastes like. Do we know what it tastes like? We have no clue what it tastes like. We can admire the diagrams and the description, but we cannot tell what it tastes like. We've got to bite into it. And this is what the Buddha teaches over and over again. People are very apt to forget that. Because there's a fair bit of effort connected with that. Right effort. So, as we experience the contentment and the peacefulness. We have an insight which comes up after we've been immersed in the third jhana. We shouldn't try to ascertain what is happening while we're doing it because then the thought process has started. But having experienced it, the insight is automatic. Namely, that there can only be contentment and peace if there is no wish. No wish for anything. And having experienced that, it makes such an impact that one undoubtedly tries to carry that into one's life. Obviously, one is not always going to be successful. The mind has all sorts of desires. Some of them are quite refined and some are absurd, but one knows. One knows one is only hurting oneself with every desire one has. And that the contentment and the peacefulness that one has experienced 
in the third jhana is far superior to getting one's desire. And knowing that, one can very often drop the desire and thereby drop the dukkha. The wanting, the restlessness, the trying to get. Having experienced real contentment within, having experienced peacefulness to an extent that one has never had in daily life, makes it quite clear. That wishlessness is one of the doorways to enlightenment. One can read in the suttas. It's right there. But how does one do that? One can only do it if one really knows what the result of it is. So obviously, Sir Jana, not being enlightenment, gives one a taste of what it's like to be wishless. And then that brings about a different way of dealing with one's life. All the wishes that one has had, one might have already changed to more refined ones. Well, even those, even the more refined ones, create Nothing but restlessness. So as we can see in our own experience, what happens with wishlessness, it is of the greatest impact and of the greatest significance on our way to letting Dukkha go. That significant aspect of personal experience, now we finally know what the mango tastes like, that particular mango anyway, Nobody can tell us any different. And we don't have to look it up. And we don't have to ask anybody. And we don't have to make any kind of uh, assessment or comparisons. We know. We've done it. We've experienced it. We know what it's like to be wishless. It means being contented. And vice versa. Being contented means being wishless. At that time, being wishless comes easy. No problem. We've had the joy, so being wishless is the easiest thing in the world. However, in daily life it's not quite that easy. There's a lot of um, a difficulty attached to it. But we can always refer back to our own experience, especially if we've had it more than once. And it becomes part of our daily practice. And then it's not difficult to have that imbued in the mind so that we don't lose it again. Insights are not lost. They are very often like a foreign language that we have learned and not practiced. If we have gained any insight and haven't used it, it goes to the back of the mind just like a foreign language that we haven't practiced and then with a lot of um, effort, we have to bring it forward again. We hear somebody speaking that foreign language and we remember that we actually know it. And then we have to make the effort to bring it back. It's the same with insight. It's never lost. But if we don't use it in our daily lives, it goes to the back of the mind. And we can't quite get at it until somebody says, that's the kind of insight that one has. And then one remembers, yes, of course, I've had that insight. And then one can use it. So we need to use every insight that you might get, whatever it may be, whether it is a small one, a medium-sized one, or a large one, it doesn't matter. Every one of them needs to be used in your daily life, needs to be used even now in everyday activity, outside of meditation, look at it over and over again. Mull it around. See if you can enlarge it. See if there's, if there's more to it. Whether it actually is meaningful. And then, that foreign language of insight becomes your own. It is said 
uh, quite frequently, also in the introduction to this book, that there are two kinds of language. And one is the everyday kind, the ordinary kind of language, and one is the Dhamma language. And the Dhamma language is actually when we speak from absolute truth. And the Buddha does both. He speaks from relative truth and from absolute truth. So we need to be aware when one or the other is happening. As long as he talks to us about the jhanas, while he's talking to us about elevated consciousness, he's still talking on relative truth. Because it's me experiencing the jhanas. So, so far, we haven't got to any of the language which is more difficult to understand unless we can shift our perception. The four, this is still another explanation of the Buddha about the um, third jhana. The former true but subtle sense of delight and happiness born of concentration vanishes, and there arises at that time a true but subtle sense of equanimity and happiness, and one becomes one who is conscious of this true but subtle sense of equanimity and happiness. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. That last bit, that last sentence is always directed towards Potapada who asked, how do perceptions arise and cease, or how does consciousness arise and cease. So the Buddha says, well, this is how it does, from one to the next to the next. Again, the equanimity is that contentment, and happiness is an underlying factor in all but two of the jhanas. I said in all, not in all but two. And uh, it's, it sort of um, suffuses the whole experience. One can't be unhappy when one is contented. One can't be unhappy when one is peaceful. It's impossible. So there is an underlying happiness. Now he also has a simile. for the third jhana. Where are we? Again, he says first, um, with a fading away of delight, one remains imperturbable, mindful and clearly aware, and experiences that of which the noble ones say, happy is he who dwells with equanimity and mindfulness, and one enters and remains in the third jhana. And with this, devoid of delight, one so suffuses the body that no spot remains untouched. And then he gives a simile. Just as if in a pond of blue, red, or white lotuses, in which the flowers, born in the water, grown in the water, not growing out of the water, are fed from the water's depths. Those blue, red, or white lotuses would be suffused with the cool water. So, with this equanimity, devoid of delight, the, the one is so suffused in the body that no spot remains untouched. So, the last simile was that there is water welling up from below in a pond which mingles with the cool water which is already there, and so that the whole pool, all the water is mixed. And here we, he's using the three kinds of lotuses, which are the most common ones, blue, red, and white. And they are born in the water, they grow in the water, and they are fed from the water's depth, and so they are suffused with that cool water. It always boils down to the same thing, that one needs to fill oneself from head to toe. In the one instance with the joy and the joy of the second jhana and in this instance with the contentment and the peacefulness which is called equanimity here. Uh, the, uh, both of them are called equanimity here of the third jhana. 
contentment and peacefulness are more descriptive than equanimity. Most people don't know exactly what equanimity is like, but contentment, most people do know what it's like. And peacefulness, one also has an inkling what it's like. This kind of peacefulness is far greater than anything that one can experience in the world. There is nothing in the world that can bring that peacefulness. And the most interesting aspect of that is, I should think, that we carry it within us. Everyone carries it within. And yet, we have constant wars. There's war going on everywhere. There's a war going on within oneself. There's a war going on in families. There's a war going on at the workplace. There's a war going on, a shooting war. There's a war going on with uh, uh, the defense mechanism. There's wars everywhere. And yet we carry this within. And all we have to do is concentrate. It's really amazing that that isn't more widespread. And even though people do meditate, it's not so much a feature of their meditation. Even though we might get not one single step further, which is highly unlikely. If one has got to the third jhana, one definitely gets further. But even though we might not, having experienced one's own inner peacefulness and getting back to that again and again should be sufficient to change the quality of one's life. And not only of one's own life. We all have influence on each other. We can't help it. Even if we were to sit in a lonely cave all by ourselves, our mental states would still have an influence on the world. Because what comes from us mentally and emotionally emanates outside of us. And obviously all of us don't sit in a lonely cave, so we have contact with other people. And having this contact with other people, if we emanate peacefulness, surely it will help others. But not only that. They might feel it, they might become attracted to it, they might like to emulate it. But not only that, there is universal consciousness and we all are part and parcel of it and within universal consciousness everything that consciousness can produce exists so in other words everything if we one, two or ten or a hundred people have inner peace and are able to sustain that for some time and thereby also change the quality of their own lives, that enters into universal consciousness so that it is always accessible and available. And that what we produce in our own consciousness is what also enters into us from universal consciousness. We can only latch on to that which we have already produced. It's like an echo. There's no way that universal consciousness will give us peacefulness if we haven't got it. But if we have it, it is that which we touch upon. So, it's not a one-way street. I'm going to be peaceful and then the rest of the world can perish. The Buddha never had that kind of thought. His whole activity from the day of his enlightenment was one of showing mankind what could be done. And it spread and it spread to many different countries till it's even now here. And it's never that, just me 
and the world goes away. The unity consciousness, which is also mentioned here, where it says, unity of mind, which means one-pointedness, but it also has a meaning of unity consciousness. There's a consciousness which arises very subtly at this time. It becomes much stronger later in the higher jhanas. Arises that realization that we're not separate. That we're all completely connected, embedded in one creation. And that arises very subtly at this time, but as we carry on and get further on with the jhanas, it becomes a definite experience. And of course, that unity consciousness makes it quite easy to have loving kindness and compassion because there's nobody else there. It's just the quality of the heart, that's all. Nothing else. There isn't anybody else. So, all these things work hand in hand. And as a mind is able to Zoom text and elevate itself from its ordinary kind of thinking, where it's just concerned with analysis, logic, and understanding, very often, of course, negative, when it elevates it elevates the other consciousness which are around also. Our environment is dependent on us. It's a great mistaken view to think, which practically all of mankind does, that there's the environment and here's me and I'm looking at it and uh, I can do something with it whether for good or bad. The environment are the people and often around us. It's a total mistaken view that there is this boundary between us. We realize feeling of unity and have the elevated consciousness of the mind that has become, has got away from the thought processes then we also know that our environment is part of us and we are all dependent on each other. So whatever we do, whether for good or for bad, we have an influence on our environment. And if we would like to have a less polluted environment, and there's all sorts of talks about that and interest in it depends on a polluted mind on a mind which has the ability to reach higher states of consciousness higher states of consciousness is the title of the whole sutta and is not confined to the jhanas but dependent upon them